scripture reading this morning, the Old Testament reading, Genesis 18, verses 10 through 14. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you, about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. New Testament reading from 1 Peter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. If you do good and do not fear anything, that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Adelina. Um, it's kind of a funny story. I asked Adelina last week, knowing she was on schedule to read this, this text from 1 Peter, if she was anyway uncomfortable reading today's text, and I would make Josue read it aloud for everyone to demonstrate the sacrificial nature of what husbands should do for their wives. Uh, but <laughs> gratefully, mercifully, Adelina understands uh, that a lot of what has been attributed to 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7, by those who oppose scripture, uh, isn't actually what is being said here, and uh, we're so grateful for you for reading that for us, so thank you. Um, but uh, before we begin the preaching of God's word, uh, could we pray together? Father, we know your word is God-breathed, useful for teaching, correcting, and training in righteousness, sharper than any double-edged sword. As we come today searching, uh, perhaps with many questions about today's text, doubts, suspicions, uh, we pray that uh, your servant uh, may speak with clarity, compassion, conviction, and faithfulness. We pray that we would see Christ above controversy, conviction, and faithfulness to your word. We pray that uh, we would uh, shatter our assumptions that we bring to the text. We would align our hearts and minds to Jesus. May your Holy Spirit reveal your truth today. It's his name we pray. Amen. So uh, we're going through this sermon series on 1 Peter verse by verse, talking about suffering and salvation in exile. Uh, Peter has been laying out the foundation of his argument that the church, uh, particularly exiled Christians in the diaspora, is called uh, to suffering. And that in living lives that endure suffering, uh, their faith will be proven genuine, that they are laying claim to their salvation and inheritance that is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven, and that suffering leads to glory. 
So, so because of this, as we've been studying, the people of God are called to be holy. Uh, and holiness looks a lot like love, enduring trials, putting away malice and slander and submission to secular authorities, even in unjust circumstances, because in doing so, uh, they will understand Christ and his sufferings for us. And so today, we need to debunk uh, many assumptions that surround confusion in this text, both outside the church and especially inside the church, uh, assumptions that have caused a great deal of harm to Christians and non-Christians alike in how these passages in 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 are interpreted and applied. Uh, the biblical scholar D.A. Carson once says, and I'm paraphrasing this here, uh, assuming a text without context creates a pretext for a wrong proof text. All right, so meaning that if we assume the text is saying something without diving into the context, we are setting ourselves up to believe the Bible is saying something that it doesn't really say. Text without context is a pretext for a proof text. I, I, I love raps, and that phrase is like bars, right? Now, as the kids say, right? Okay, it's, it's great. Um, so assumptions on 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7 has, has been the cause of great harm. Assumptions on this text is that it somehow removes the dignity that women deserve because they are created in the image of God. Assumptions on this text wrongfully makes the Bible say things about women and wives that the Bible never says. It's my hope that when we go through this text today, we won't just see the reality of how women are to be seen, but, but we'll see Jesus more clearly in a way that causes women and men to worship him more passionately in the church and in the world because of the way that this text is used. Um, just a quick preference before we begin. I, I cannot go into a full dive of everything that I will long for in this uh, sermon. Uh, so I'm gonna recommend two books that I believe are incredibly helpful for this if you really wanna do the deep dive. Uh, Rachel Green Miller's Beyond Authority and Submission is perhaps the most helpful book on this topic and I'm gonna be using much of her important contributions for the entire sermon today. Uh, a more technical book, scripturally, but also really helpful is Kathy Keller, uh, the wife of the late Tim Keller. A quick read, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, uh, which outlines some of the biblical arguments that led her to believe in the idea that submission is not an important idea. Uh, but rather a beautiful practice. Um, uh, if you're looking to see, by the way, if you say, well, this can't translate into our modern day culture, uh, two other autobiographies I'm gonna recommend, uh, the African-American poet Jackie Hill Perry and a former women's study professor at Syracuse University, Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, have autobiographies that outline how someone who came to Christianity after living in the uh, LGBTQ plus community, uh, who both outline conversion stories that are uh, deeply and incredibly powerful and how uh, submission uh, played a huge role in that story. So I will be leaning on all of these godly women today, and I hope that you do too in your study of this. All right, so let's get to it. Uh, we're gonna talk about four major things here today. Um, why is Peter talking about submission? That's number one. Two, uh, what Peter is not saying about submission. All right, three, why is submission even a part of marriage? And four, how God sees the honor and dignity of women. Uh, so let's first understand why Peter is talking about submission here in this text. Uh, so let's look at verse one, and he starts by saying likewise, implying that the argument that he was making about submission to authorities, which apply to everyone, men and women, is something that marginalized Christians should practice in the face of seemingly difficult, hard, and challenging circumstances. And if you remember what I said last week, Peter is speaking to two groups of people in particular that are dealing with unjust suffering. 
Two groups that otherwise, in the society around them, that would have been perceived to be less than by the social, political, and cultural world. Uh, the first were slaves. And Peter is drawing attention to them to show that through the circumstances and situations surrounding their slavery, uh, they can still serve with purpose and meaning, uh, that their life has more dignity than the world is offering to them. And so the second group that he's focusing on today, and that is with wives, uh, Peter is not just merely bringing up the issue of submission out of the blue. He's uh, telling this to women uh, to, so that he knows, because he knows the particular danger of suffering that they will face. New Christian converts in a surrounding world that will not understand them. Now, what danger is present for women here in the Greco-Roman world? You see, the Greco-Roman world had a particular attitude towards women in general and wives in particular. Rachel Green Miller highlights this in greater detail in her book, but in short, the attitude was believing that women were superiorly inferior to men in Greco-Roman culture. I'm going to read a lot of quotes uh, from her book from ancient Greek philosophers, and I'm, I'm sorry, by the way, if I chuckle as I'm reading this. Please understand this, because I think that what I'm about to read is so incredibly offensive that I can't do anything but mock it in laughter, so I apologize. Okay, here we go. In the creation narrative of women in Greek mythology, Zeus created Pandora, the first woman, to be wicked and a tormentor of men because men had stolen fire. Uh, she was created to be a liar and a thief. And the moral of the story of this creation of women, according to the Greek poet, Simonides of Amagos, uh, the moral of this Greco-Roman creation narrative is that women are the worst plague that Zeus has ever made. The Greek physician Hippocrates believed that women's organs cause hysteria and unstable minds that can only be cured through marriage. And so therefore, men had to have the courage to marry women for the good of society. The influential Greek poet, Hipponax, once wrote, the two best days in a woman's life are when someone marries her and when he carries her dead body to the grave. The Greek philosopher, Aristotle, separated the sphere of the domestic life, which he called the oikos, and the public sphere, the polis, which set the course for the Roman Greco society that women, due to their low secular status, were best suited for the domestic sphere of the home and should not venture out much on their own. Needless to say, being a woman in the Greco-Roman world was dangerous and hostile at every turn. Misogyny was literally the foundations of the secular world that formed Greco-Roman culture. And that included the expectations of what a woman was supposed to be in marriage and which God they could worship. Women could not hold different religions or even friends other than their husband's friends and religion in Greek culture. The Greek philosopher Plutarch articulated this position in his work on marriage, saying that wives should not acquire their own friends and only recognize their husband's gods. So the danger for Christian women in this era is that it's called for them to break off of the religion of their husbands and enjoin themselves to a community apart from their husband's control, a community that is called the church, a community that uses and embeds the language of family. The church is this family of spiritual fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Such an association, especially with Christianity being already a marginalized, persecuted people, would have certainly met a death sentence for women who choose to rebel against their husbands. The biblical commentator Karen Jobes notes that Christians were frequently blamed as the cause of public calamity because they introduced a new God and created disorder, particularly in the family. 
To be a Christian and a woman in this era meant endangering your life, more so than the men. So submitting to their husbands in Greco-Roman fashion meant humiliation, and like the slaves of the era, seemed like a purposeless and unwinnable life, the Kobayashi Maru I was talking about several weeks ago. So remember Peter last week in writing to marginalized slaves with no possible recourse to change their situation or the surrounding dominant culture, Peter is likewise addressing women in their plight by reframing their submission in the eyes of how Christ lived. Christ in his submission and humiliation on the cross from the Roman authorities of his day changed the world. And so the same spirit of Christ lies within these women, just like Jesus. And they can even, and this is an astonishing statement, remember, given the context, they can win over their husbands through their character and their conduct. So you see, Peter here is not advocating for the silence of women. You have to remember that Peter in chapter 2 is speaking about the sufferings of Christ and how we are to follow his steps in submission. So Peter isn't exclusively resigning the idea to submission to women only. You've got to read chapter 2. We've got to understand the context. Rather, he's highlighting the wives' plight and giving voice to their struggle and their difficulty in a society that otherwise wouldn't care at all about the rights of the women to worship Jesus. So, in other words, Peter's saying, when the words and philosophies and systems of the world fail you, Peter's saying, use your life. Verse 2, your respectful and pure conduct to witness Jesus by imitating him and walking in his footsteps to the cross. So you see, this is why Peter is addressing this issue of submission. And that, of course, it leads us to talk more about our second point here, what Peter is not saying about submission. Often what we attribute to the idea of submission from our modern-day lens and even the ways that churches of the past have abused this principle, and by the way, church, we need to be the first to acknowledge that, uh, to cause great harm to women throughout the ages. Uh, for good reason. We attribute these things sometimes for a good reason. Um, Rachel Green Miller writes that the Renaissance sought to reclaim these Greco-Roman ideals about women. And the Victorian age, the age that spawned much intrigue and cultural revolution that shaped much of the Western society in the late 19th century and the beginning of the 20th, sought to reclaim the Renaissance and Greek philosophy and its viewpoints on men and women to see them as norms. It's important to understand how much secular influence pushed this into the doors of the church. Charles Darwin of evolutionary fame wrote during the Victorian era in his work, The Descent of Man and Selection Related to Sex. He, Charles Darwin says this, man is more courageous, pugnacious, and energetic than women, and that man has achieved a higher eminence in whatever he takes up than women can attain. A contemporary of Charles Darwin, the French psychologist, atheist, Gustave Le Bon, claimed that women represent the most inferior forms of human evolution and are closer to children and savages than to an adult civilized man. These ideas shaped a generation of people. Women in the Victorian era couldn't own property, manage money, or run a business independently. It was taught that women held smaller brains and it would be too much for them, thus barring their ability to vote apart from their husbands. Now, unfortunately, the church in this era and the era subsequent 
rather than upholding the dignity of women, fused together with the world's philosophy on women in ways that were not based upon scripture, but Victorian patriarchy. The only improvement in the view of women from the Greco-Roman era is that in the Victorian era is that they were, women were seen as better moral agents, but only in the service of their husbands. Whereas Victorian teachings on biblical manhood, and women, uh, biblical manhood said this, right, that man was supposed to be sort of this muscular, bodybuilding uh, Christianity that even necessarily didn't require men to be faithful to their wives. It was deemed to be a part of his nature to cheat and saw the woman working in the world as an abomination to the family unit. Now, does this sound familiar to maybe ideas that we've co-opted in our secular day today? Much of the history of Americans' ideas of manhood and womanhood and how these ideas have seeped into the life of the church still stand today in ways that are not biblically based but culturally formed by secular society and try to reverse engineer the Bible to defend it. Now, Peter is not saying any of the things that I just mentioned in these verses, but I understand why so many feel as though Peter is saying these things because of how pockets of the church throughout history have applied these verses to reinforce the evils of secular ideology in their views on women. The worst form of Christian teaching on manhood and womanhood reinforce not the Bible, but Victorian patriarchy. But we must be able to take the Bible on its own terms and realize the context that Peter is driving home is not for the diminishing of women, but for the dignity of Christian women in an era where such dignity would not have been afforded at all. So when we read verses 3 and 4, Peter is making an astounding statement. Whereas the culture defines the value of a woman by her status of what she wears on the outside, all right? The character of Christ is the thing that defines the dignity of a woman. Peter is saying that the woman shouldn't define themselves by the Greco-Roman symbols of wealth or who she's going to marry or even, you know, what friends she spends her time with. She's defined by how God sees her beauty within a person who follows the character of Christ. Peter's exhortation to a gentle and quiet spirit is not about reinforcing docile, sort of seen but not heard womanhood. Rather, it is following Christ, who, how is Christ described? Gentle and lowly in heart. This Christ, who through the character of compassion and grace, who did not look like anything externally on the outside that would have been seen as beautiful, this Christ is setting the example for all mankind. The Christ who goes and submits to death on a cross for the love of his people, redeeming them from the curse of sin so that, that through this act, the imperishable beauty of Christ is beholded for the victory over Satan to be won. You see, this is the kind of beauty that does not fade, does not diminish. This is giving us a picture of Christ that is wondrous and precious because it holds a picture of our very own salvation. And so this is seeing women as God sees her, complete, whole, strong, intelligent, inward and outward beauty through her character, wondrous in his sight. So you see, it's with that context and only that context can we then see what Peter is really saying about why submission is a part of marriage, our third point here today in verses five and six. Women in the biblical view of marriage are called to represent a symbol in that marriage of the people of God the church in relation to Christ. 
But don't get it twisted. Women is not in her being and in her personhood a mere submissive agent that is subordinate to all men. Her worth, in other words, and her dignity is not her submission. Rather, in the responsibility that has been given to her in the family, she has been called to submit to just one man, to her husband. The word here for submission is hupotasso. It's a voluntary submission, kind of like military language, which encoded in military language, there is clauses to disobey. So voluntary submission in the sense that is done in a way that is responding to her husband's servant leadership. A husband who is sacrificially laying down his life for her as Christ did the church. A husband who is laying down his life for her, for her flourishing. So it is not unquestioned submission to domineering uh, men. It is not unchallenged submission to controlling men, but a loving act of submission to the way that her husband is laying down his life for her. So in other words, she responds by receiving it with joy. This is really important because we often think of submission for women in marriage and that her women, the, a woman's being, her essence, the substance of a woman is supposed to be submissive. And we equate that with her position in society and the world today. Uh, this is actually based on a very problematic view of the Trinity called the eternal subordination of the Son of God where Jesus is seen to eternally submit to the Father, and the Father is seen as primary in the Trinity. But our Reformed confessional statements of the church speak to the idea that this is a Trinitarian error. As the Westminster Confession of Faith Shorter Catechism states, God is three persons in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and these three are one true eternal God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. The larger catechism adds this phrase that deals with the issue that we're talking about here, that they are distinguished, so they're equal in power and glory, but they're distinguished by their personal properties. So what does that mean? In other words, Jesus' submission to the Father is not a part of his essence. It's not part of his ontology. There's your $5 theological word today, right? As part of his essence, right? Rather, it's a part of Jesus' activity or what's called the economic trinity, right? The doing of Jesus in redemption. So in other words, submission isn't who Jesus is, as though he is some form of a lesser God subordinate to the Father. Rather, it's what Jesus does in the work of bringing redemption to his people by listening to the Father's will. So when Peter in verse five is advocating for submission in marriage specifically, he's not calling for women to think of their essence their being as submissive to all men. Rather, he's calling for the activity of the wife so long as his husband is not violating the commands of God or calling her to abusive behavior or any kind of abuse in nature to submit to Christ, uh, to submit to him as Christ did to the Father, as the church does to Christ in displaying a picture of Jesus that would otherwise would be incomplete without it. Some of you might be familiar with Kathy Keller. Um, she entered into seminary believing in absolutely no distinctions between a man and a woman when it came to specific roles in her life. But as she began to study scriptures, she began to see these gender responsibilities in a different light that brought beauty to the teachings of scripture. So she writes this in her book, uh, Justice, Gen uh, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. We can have this quote on the screen. Uh, the glory of gender roles for me is that everyone gets to reveal an aspect of Jesus' life. Jesus, in his submissive servanthood, 
taking on the role of a servant in order to secure our salvation shows that his submission to the Father was a gift, not something compelled from him. He willingly assumed the role of the servant for the purpose of accomplishing our justification. The son's ontological equality with the Father, right, his essence, his being, and yet his economic submission for the purpose of salvation in taking on the role of a servant can lead us into the heart of the mystery of the Trinity. How else can this even begin to be conveyed without human players who enact the same truths, the same roles? See, this is the heart of Peter's teaching. Men and women are equal in the eyes of God with distinct responsibilities in marriage and how these are expressed. This is not to attribute particular values of the way God created men and women that solely belong to men and women alone. In other words, if the errors of our secular society today is that they deny any distinction between men and women, the error of the Christian church is that often we take character traits and attribute them completely to either manhood or womanhood and separate them in ways that are completely unbiblical and are more based upon, again, everything that we've just talked about rather than scripture. So, you know, you've heard them, right? To be a man means you can't enjoy art and music or you shouldn't play instruments like the flute, can't show emotion, you must be athletic. To be a woman, biblically, quote unquote, means you must have to dress pretty or whatever, be controlled by your feelings and you know, whatever, pumpkin spice lattes, right? We exclusively make these categories to define manhood and womanhood. Uh, no hate on pumpkin spot lattes, I love them, right? But you get my point, right? You get my point. Uh, what does scripture tell us about the attributes of womanhood? Genesis speaks of the created order. The image of God, he made them male and female. They were both co-laborers in the garden. Eve as Adam's helper because it was not good for him to be alone. We see worship leaders like Miriam in Exodus, judges like Deborah, courageous widows like Ruth, risk takers like Esther, women of great wisdom like Abigail and women of prayer like Hannah. We see faithful, hopeful women of faith like Anna in the way of the coming Messiah. We see the trust of a young teenager, Mary. We see a faithful grandmothers like Lois and mothers like Eunice. We see Syrophoenician women, Gentiles, come to understand Jesus who give worthy responses, better even than the disciples could. We see women to be the first witnesses to the resurrection and faithful women like Lydia and Priscilla who supported the church through their businesses and their intellect. Scripture is telling us in every page that submission does not mean being walked over, stepped on, or treated as less than. This is how Peter is using this passage in regarding Sarah and Abraham that we just read in the Old Testament reading today and how it's being applied here in 1 Peter 3. Sarah, if you notice, isn't some pushover. <laughs> Far from it. Genesis has it at one point. God says to Abraham in Genesis 21:12, you better listen to Sarah no matter what she asks of you. Sarah is honoring the responsibility God has given Abraham in the one place of a position of authority, and so Sarah calls him Lord, right? Uh, lowercase l, it's a position of leadership. Sarah is not referring to Abraham as God himself. Uh, she even questions how God is going to give her a child in her old age. You see, by referring to this story, Peter is rooting it in the foundation of the founding family of God's people. So Peter is making a distinction between marriage and slavery that we talked about last week. See, slavery was a part of the post-fall reality, uh, but in marriage as a creation ordinance, it was their pre-fall. It's a part of God's design for whom he calls into marriage. Um, now, before I continue on, let me just speak to the singles for a second. Uh, 
singles, uh, singleness is a great calling and not a lesser than calling. And please don't hear me say that marriage is, is somehow a better and truer calling. If marriage is to give us the symbols of Christ, to, to quote Sam Albury, uh, singleness shows the sufficiency of Christ. But for those whom he called into marriage, this creation ordinance means that there are duties for men and women that are distinct, but yet do not diminish their worth and value as they express the love of God to one another. Nor does it mean that women and men are boxed into societal norms and how this is expressed. In this, at the end of verse 6 states, submission isn't ultimately about the fear of man or the fear of what you think about yourself. Submission is about this phrase that we, that we see up coming again and talking about last week. It's about what? Doing good. Imitating Christ. This is honorable and dignified. This will express itself in many different and vibrant ways. And Peter intentionally leaves this idea of submission open-ended because it will look very differently in cultures, in families, in personalities all across the world all across the diaspora that he was writing to. In other words, Peter is asking for submission in this manner to be filled in some way, but never speaks exactly to the specific way in how it is to be fulfilled. Christ and the church, these images of sacrifice and submission will be expressed in different and dynamic ways that speaks to the beauty and diversity of the body of Christ. And that's what leads us to our final point today. And this is how God sees the honor and dignity of women. Peter ends in verse 7 with an exhortation to men. Briefly, and in consistency with the rest of Scripture, uh, he gives commands to those who have uh, the most authority in society and in culture and gives them responsibilities and duties to exercise that power in servanthood, not abusiveness and domineering. Peter here wants men to understand the plight of women in showing honor to them in a Greco-Roman world that hated them. And he describes women here with a phrase that is much maligned. Again, because we see the text but not the context, which is a pretext for a proof text, he uses this phrase called weaker vessel, a phrase that is not meant to imply that women are somehow created weaker than men. It's a phrase meaning that women's place in secular society is weaker, often viewed in terms of physical strength in a Greco-Roman culture that didn't allow women to exhibit strength, but more so, weaker vessel meant that her position in the world didn't allow for any kind of mobility. So again, Peter's not talking about ontology. He's not talking about essence, right? Uh, he isn't saying women in their essence are weaker. Rather, it's about how the world sees them. And Peter is saying, we need to understand their situation in the world and lay down our lives for them. Why? Peter reminds us of Scripture's teaching that women are co-heirs, co-heirs with us in the grace of life. We are co-laborers in the gospel together. We, according to book of Revelation, the sort of the final statement on the matter, will be ruling and reigning with Christ, men and women together. So Revelation does not say that men will be ruling and reigning and women will be off doing whatever. No, we are equally ruling and reigning with Christ. So these symbols of marriage, in other words, are temporary symbols of the reality of what it means of who will become in heaven. 
And that any violation of this dignity and value and honor that women are due comes with God's strongest exhortations and judgment upon men who abuse and mistreat this principle. God will stop listening to them. Their prayers will be hindered when women are treated in any kind of abuse of power and abuse of authority. We are already seeing ways today in which God is punishing churches, men who treat women without the dignity that they deserve. In the largest study done on the great exodus of Christianity in America, um, 40 million Christians who have left the church in the past 20 years, um, 3.6 million of those 40 million self-reported that they left because of misogyny in the church. Uh, the book called The Great Dechurching notes that, you know, all right, even if you want to get defensive about that stat, right, uh, from the church side of it or become overly skeptical or about self-reporting, uh, it speaks to the volume of stories told by women and men of their experience of the devaluing of the honor and dignity of women in the church. And what you will find in the American church uh, that devalues them, it speaks to a lack of love of our sisters in Christ. For those churches, institutions, and men who do not treat women with what they deserve in the eyes of God, 1 Peter 3, 7 should terrify us as the American evangelical church. It makes it incredibly plain. There will be hell to pay. God will stop listening. Later on, in verse 12 of our text, which we'll get to next week, it says that God's face is against those who do evil. And the thought of that condemnation and judgment should be chilling for all of us here. But in that, it also speaks to the value that God has towards women and how much he loves them in this way. And so City of Hope, Presbyterian Church, uh, we long to be a church my prayer for this congregation is we long to be a church that is for the flourishing of women here. From book studies to community groups to worship leading to prayers, Sunday school instruction, everything that the Bible permits, we long to live out together. Women are not second-class citizens in the body of Christ. And we come together as co-laborers in the gospel because we are co-heirs with Christ. Together we need one another. So it's my hope today in this passage uh, we will all see how much we need women in the church to use their giftings, to know that they give us a picture of Christ that is needed and necessary for us to thrive as the body of Christ. To know, just like in Peter's age, that they face unimaginable pressure from the world and society to devalue and undignify themselves. But through their perseverance, through their strength and character, we will see Jesus, the gentle and lowly Savior, brothers and sisters united to Christ who will one day be ruling and reigning with him and that we honor her as God honors her. In doing so, we will see a picture of Christ that completes our understanding of him, our love of him, and our worship of Jesus in our church. Let's pray together.